Mac Observer's Mac Geek Ab number 317 for Monday, February 28th, 2011. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab here in sunny New Hampshire. Oh, it's not sunny at all today, John. It's rainy and dreary. I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, um, which is rainy and dreary, but it's warm. It's a, it's a balmy 52 degrees here. I mean, it's almost spring. Uh, yes, John F. Braun. Hi, John F. Braun. So, yeah, we are the Mac Geek Up. We come here every week, unless we take a week off like we did last week uh, because I was on vacation. And we come here every week to share tips, answer questions, uh, share some experiences, and essentially try to enhance and increase your knowledge of all things Mac and Apple and technical and all that stuff. So, John, you know, I, I was on vacation last week, as I mentioned, and we took a trip out to San Francisco uh, with the family, which was great. Uh, while I was gone, I took it as a good opportunity, and I'm going to do more of this testing while I'm at Macworld Expo here. Uh, sorry, Macworld Expo. It's South by Southwest here uh, down in Austin oh. later, later. Uh, well, I guess it's not March yet, but but uh, later in March. So you weren't you, you didn't unplug because I know you've taken vacations where you, you you would vow to be off the grid. But I guess this was not one of them. Yeah. So we were we were on the grid and, I, and I'll uh, well, I'll, I'll take a minute and talk about why there were there were a couple of reasons we were we remained on the grid this vacation. One was uh, we we wound up renting an apartment. As opposed to renting a hotel, we rented an apartment from, uh, I found a, a website actually called homeaway.com and I it turned on to it by a Super Bowl ad of all things. Years ago when Lisa and I had first visited San Francisco, uh, we stayed in an apartment there and we found it because someone I knew knew uh, someone, it was, you know, kind of a sort of a buddy deal thing, um, and it was great because, you know, you get to live in a neighborhood and you have more room and, and it's usually much cheaper uh, and all that stuff than a hotel. So during the Super Bowl, I saw an ad for HomeAway.com and it was fantastic. It was exactly the same kind of thing. But now it's kind of a just a website that puts people together. So we found this apartment. We stayed in the lower height. Uh, three bedrooms, just, uh, you know, real quick, three bedrooms. I think it was 1800 square feet. We had a living room, full kitchen, all that stuff. Hundred and fifty bucks a night. I, I, you know, you just can't beat this stuff. And and so part of the reason we stayed online was that being in the lower hate, we I didn't you know, that's not a neighborhood I know, even though we're in San Francisco all the time. I just don't know that neighborhood. So having things available like Yelp and uh, and and all that was was quite good. Of course, also having access to Google Maps. Now, this doesn't really tie into the the, the conversation we're about to have about different Wi-Fi hotspots, but uh, having access to Google Maps and and the way that it integrates and guides you through the uh, the San Francisco uh, Muni system, the bus system and the trains was fantastic. It really allowed us to get around everywhere. So and, and a bunch of my Twitter followers were the ones that recommended that I just go with Google Maps and I should be fine. And they were absolutely right. Uh, it worked out so well because the phone's got GPS, uh, the, the iPhone or really an Android phone or anything has GPS and uh, knows where you are. And then it also has links to the bus system. So it'll tell you, yeah, you oh, say, wow. I want to get from here to there. And it says, great. Yeah. Walk two blocks uh, to this corner. Wait there for the bus. Uh, the next bus is due in seven minutes, right? All the buses have GPS on them. 
So the uh, the predictions we found were amazingly accurate. You know, it's like get on this bus, take it to here, you know, transfer to this bus, take it there and you're good to go or, or whatever, you know, whatever the options were. And uh, OK, I've had the same really experience uh, traveling to New York City is that, yeah, so you use Google Maps and then they'll have a public. Yep. Well, they have a number of options. They're like, do you want to walk? Right. You know, they give you walking directions. They'll give you driving directions, which yep. if you're driving in New York City, you're insane, in my opinion. Well, or the subway and the bus system. And yeah, yeah, they'll give you either or. You can do all subway, subway, bus hybrid, stuff like that. So yeah, yeah I'm, I'm very impressed with Google Maps uh, yeah. public transportation. Options. It wasn't always so, uh, the most efficient thing. By the end of the week, we realized, oh, wait a minute. You know, if we do that, we've got to change buses. But if we go, you know, one block in this direction, we can just go straight there. That sort of thing. So it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't picking the absolute best route, at least by our interpretation, but it was picking a route and to not have to memorize the bus routes. That was huge. Once we did know better, we could do, you know, we did what we wanted, but uh, but it was very, very handy. Loved it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely loved it. Um, but so I took this as an opportunity to check out a couple of different what uh, personal Wi-Fi hotspots. And, and the, I'm going to define that as being. Any device that allows you to get uh, to to take a a wireless cell phone uh, data signal and rebroadcast it as a personal Wi-Fi hotspot. So the the Verizon MiFi or really the MiFi, which can be bought from a number of different carriers, uh, the MiFi is is the classic kind of uh, incarnation of this, right? It gets its signal from the cell network. The one I have is a Verizon MiFi. It gets it from Verizon. It then broadcasts it, and it's this little battery powered hotspot that's you know about the size of maybe it's a little smaller than an iPhone, actually quite a bit smaller, maybe half the size of an iPhone, and uh, and broadcasts it for up to five users, and you know. Uh, okay. Uh, all that. So, so, th- so this could be a three G or, uh, for the most part, a three G or four G data signal that it's converting to Wi Fi. Yeah, that's right. Although you certainly okay. could do it with the, you know, the slower, the two G stuff, Edge, and and all that. So, so I tested four different things. I tested uh, the wow. Verizon Wi Fi, as I discussed. Uh, I tested AT and T over my iPhone with tethering and, and it may or may not be jailbroken to, to make that happen. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and then I tested a, and I'm going to talk, a, I talked a little bit about this a couple of weeks ago, but I, I bought from Virgin mobile. Uh, I bought the LG Optimus five phone, which is an Android phone, uh, but it connects to Virgin mobile's network, which here in the U S is sprint. And, uh, and and use that as a hotspot uh, because the phone will allow that if you install the right software. And and then I also tested this thing from a company called Clear uh, that is a 3G. It, it's uh, not a phone. It's just the hotspot. Uh, and it's it's like the uh, their equivalent of a of a MiFi. So um, that's uh, those are the those are the four things that I tested. I guess they call it their personal mobile internet hotspot. No, no, no. I'm, I'm trying to. I don't have the model right here in front of me. It is the ClearSpot 4G Plus is what uh, is what I was testing. So, very interesting results. Um, before I left, I tested everything here at my home in in uh, Durham, New Hampshire, and where I cannot get a 4G signal. Uh, so oh. Uh, oh, it's fine. Uh, so I had 3G signals on everything. And the uh, clearly the fastest thing was uh, 
the iPhone. I, I don't think it's any great surprise, but but AT&T's 3G network is the, regularly being reported as the fastest one. I was getting, you know, two to three megabits down and over one megabit up uh, on AT&T. So that that was that was, you know, to me, that was fine. Uh, the rest of them all kind of fell into the same range getting uh, and that's the uh, the clear spot 4G plus the Verizon MiFi and then the the Virgin America phone uh, Virgin mobile phone. Virgin America is the airline. Uh, I was getting about one, maybe to one and a half megabits down and then anywhere between point three and point five megabits up. And that was all the same for for these three different uh, for these three different devices. I believe ClearSpot was using Nextel's 3G network, which is the same 3G network that or Sprint's, which is the same that uh, Virgin Mobile was using. But um, the interesting part was 4G, and that was the same. 3G speeds were the same wherever I was, or at least wherever I tested it. Uh, the ClearSpot 4G Plus, I happened to test it while we were waiting in the terminal at Boston Logan. And I got a 4G signal and got killer connections. I got uh, almost five megabits down and then uh, about one and a half up was was what I was doing on the 4G connection. And uh, and that worked really well. That 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 worked nicely. Unfortunately, in San Francisco and I've, I've got to check in with them and see why this is. But unfortunately, in San Francisco, at least where we stayed in this apartment in the lower height, uh, I could get no 4G signal. I even tried going outside. Uh, there, there just was none. Uh, so I, I was not able to test it, but I was able to run it on 3g and, and again, got about that, you know, that really one to one and a half and, and about a half a megabit up. Yeah. Yeah. Because now I had now just to contrast Dave is mm-hmm. that as you know, I think I mentioned is that they gave me a different device, which is a, a pure, it's a, it's a USB, I'll call modem. it a USB radio modem. Okay. Which is either 3g or 4g. Now, yep. fortunately now both where I am, uh, the city next to me, Bridgeport, they uh, they just activated service. And, okay. And with that, I get pretty good. I get about three megabits up and three down, which is pretty good, especially mm. the uh, the up. I mean, that's faster than my cable modem. But when I was in San Francisco, you know, so I'm a uh, you know, I have a review of this in in the works. But the speed that I got in San Francisco was the best of all the speeds I saw. I got seven megabits down, four megabits up using okay. speedtest.net. So. Their 4G, when it works, is is smoking. Now, the only thing that I found, I'll, I'll just give you a very quick feedback. Though, if you're inside a big metal tube, and I, I want to follow up with them to find out about this, but either when I was on the train, so they also claim to have service in New York City. Yep. Uh, my experience is if you're in a big metal tube, whether it be a train or uh, an airplane, uh, I don't know if it's because of the frequency that 4G uses, but then... It, it was it, it didn't work right for me. I had to back off to 3G. Yeah. So. Yeah. But when I, the 4G think, works and you're in a major city. Oh, man, it, it is. It, and I think their 4G plans are typically unlimited, which is another shocker. OK. OK. At least for the device I have, I think it's 55 bucks a month and it's unlimited 4G. Which, OK. You know, like unlimited does unlimited really mean unlimited. And I think in their right. case, until right. you uh, unless you go nuts, it does, which is, right. is pretty cool. So, so I just have some nice things to say about not clear in general and that uh when i was at MacWorld, the, the speeds were great good okay yeah I, and it's you know it is definitely one of those your mileage may vary things and and from what i understand yeah 4g is far more temperamental right now than 3g so uh and we'll and we'll find out more from the uh from the clear folks as well but uh 
But, you know, they all worked great. I, I want to take a minute and talk a little bit more about this uh, Virgin Mobile, this this phone, because it, it's an interesting thing. It was 150 bucks. Now, this is an Android phone running 2.2. And uh, you download an app called Quick Settings to it. And that enables you to turn on and off the, the Wi-Fi hotspot. Um, and, and the Wi-Fi hotspot shows up in infrastructure mode, just like an airport base station and, and all of that stuff. So, you know, it, it works fine. And, uh, and with Virgin mobile, it's interesting. You know, I bought the phone for 150 bucks. There is no contract, no nothing. And then for 25 bucks, I can get a plan that gives me a month, you know, 30, whatever days, uh, of 300 minutes and unlimited data. Now, again, unlimited may, may mean something different to everyone, but, uh, but you know, for, for traveling that 25 bucks to be able to essentially turn this device on and into a hotspot for me, for, uh, you know, if I'm going to be in a hotel more than two days, I've just, you know, I'm going to spend more than 25 bucks on Wi-Fi, and it's probably not going to work all that well, uh, in, at least in most hotels. But uh, but this device, you know, it's your own connection and and uh, you're good to go. So check coverage maps. But this Optimus 5, it's a it's a good little option. And it also gives you some minutes on the phone. So um, the uh, the clear spot is all, it's pretty cool. It's got a digital display. On it, so it tells you right on the display a what network you're connected to, and whether it's 3G or 4G, your signal strength. It also, and you can turn this off, but it will give you the name of the wireless network and the password right on the front of it. So, uh, so very handy if it's not something you're using every day and you happen to forget or need to connect a new computer to it. You can just look at it. Now, again, you can go in and turn that off if you want to be more secure about it. But um, and it uh, it it like the uh, uh, let's see the um, the AT and T one using my Y on the on the iPhone that shows up as an ad hoc device. So we've had some trouble with that, especially with, hmm. with other third party devices in the past. Um, and it only does web encryption. The um, oh. the the Virgin Mobile one and the ClearSpot hmm. all do you know WPA WPA two etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So it, they you know they all worked fine. But um, but yeah, this Virgin Mobile thing was interesting. And it was interesting, you know, John, to play with an Android phone. Um, I, I tried really hard to like it. And there are, you know, there are some cool things about Android. Uh, it's it just way more tweakable and way more customizable. Oh, it, looks, it looks this. It looks like an iPhone. It, it does. <laughs> it, you know what? What I came up with. And, and, you know, I have to remember that I'm coming into this having used iOS for years. And, you know, I've got days you know, probably single digit, maybe double digit days of experience using Android. So, so please bear that in mind with what I'm about to say, but my feeling after using Android and really forcing myself to use it, I, I actually left the iPhone back at the, uh, at the apartment a couple of days and just used the Android phone while we were out and about. Cause I wasn't expecting any calls from people that, you know, need to get me on my iPhone. I was on vacation. So I was free to be able to kind of mess around with it. And, uh, the, the, the experience or the thought that I came away with was, gosh, this is my fear of what iOS will be like if Steve Jobs isn't there anymore to kind of crack the whip and make sure this, uh, you know, that, that things don't get the feature bloat doesn't happen, essentially. And and I realized, you know, that that uh, at least I hope that there are far more people at Apple uh, than just Steve that that get this concept now and, and are committed to it. And uh, 
And hopefully that's the case for the company going forward. But, but so, yeah. But what are you saying? The apps were what? Inconsistent. No, uh, I'm not talking about the apps. The, the user interface oh. is inconsistent. You oh, know, right, right. It, it's got this cool thing. Like, so, you know, you load a bunch and, and I actually like, I like the, again, the concept better, the implementation, not so much. Uh, on your iPhone, every time you install an app, it just gets added to, you know, yet another page of screens, right? And to me, that's kind of a pain in the neck, you know, because I, I want to be able to configure things. And there's certain apps that I use all the time that I want to have close by. And the rest, really, I just want a big, long list of the apps that are there. And I usually search for them with Spotlight anyway. So what I wind up having is a bunch of folders, you know, way out on my last screen. And I just dump and I call them keep on iPhone one, keep on iPhone two, keep on iPhone three. And I just dump kind of random apps in there and only pull out the ones that that I'm actually going to use. But I want them all there with Android apps are not. You have the same sort of idea with these home screens, but apps are not automatically added to the screen when you add them to the device. They're added to a list of apps. And again, you can pull them out of the list and put them on whatever home screen you want. But your 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 home screens aren't just being constantly, you know, barfed on with every app that gets installed. And so that's kind of cool. But here's the thing. The home screens, you swipe left and right. Very, very straightforward, you know, hmm. comfortable for an iPhone user. No problem. You know, and, and Android, like I said, Android does that the same way. You click on the list. There's a there's a little button that you click on to pull up the list of all the apps. And now suddenly I'm scrolling up and down and it took me a second. It's like, well, well how Oh, okay. You know, mm. got it. And it's just these little inconsistencies in the path through the OS that make me think, gosh, someone cl clearly Google has smart people on their staff. There's no question about this. Right. But, but they just don't clearly do not have people committed to making the user experience clean. What they, you know, they've prioritized uh, features over, you user experience and that's too bad uh, because Android's cool. It, it, you know, there's some things about it that I, that I really like the customization is great. It's a great thing to tweak. Um, you know, I mean, it's kind of like the whole, you know, 10 years ago, windows versus the back kind of thing where it was, yeah, you know, you can do more on windows, but it's not nearly as smooth as I'd ever want it to be. So, but definitely a cool, cool little device. All right. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's my, that's my little, little ramble about all that. So yeah, well, yeah. I like the clear 4G device for no other reason. The other thing I did during my travels and then we'll, we'll move on here, but, yep. um, you know, so I, I was also, if I had a preference between public Wi-Fi, which, uh, I, I think I got fortunate in every airport that I went to Dave. So between Bradley, Philadelphia, San Francisco, which didn't used to be the case. Um, I think it was also in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. I think they all had free Wi-Fi, which is really nice, but here's the problem. Now you've heard of fire sheep. Yes. And at least when I was at Bradley, so I showed up early because there was bad weather, but then, you know, of course I got stuck in Philly. Right. Um, fire sheep works great for hijacking people's Facebook. Oh yeah, of course it does. Right. <laughs> I think of all the things I found. So some people have dealt with the issue and that even if you grab the session cookie, if you try to do anything funky, they'll ask for the password again, which right. of course I didn't know, but I grabbed at least one Facebook cookie and one windows live cookie where when I clicked on the fire sheep thing, I was in that person's account. Mm -hmm. I saw their life. I could see their messages. Not that I did anything again. I'm a, you know, I'm a good guy sure. in general, but I was just curious. And, and I think actually I've noticed as of late Facebook, which I don't really use that much, but I think Facebook has actually moved to the same model where if you try to do anything sensitive or modify anything important, it comes up and says, Oh, by the way, can you give me your password again? Which is really as it should be. Uh, I don't know if it's quite well, I don't know if I call it two factor authentication, but two phase, but right. 
lots of a, a well-designed site should before you do anything not assume that the session cookie is is the the be all end all of of who you say you are uh, right. so i think people are addressing it slowly but that's what freaked me out if i had a choice between the two i'd much i'd, I'd much rather trust my data over a 3g 4g network than a open wi-fi network right is, is what i'm going to say yeah all right, cool. Great. We have a bunch of questions to get to. Uh, before we do, I want to tell you all about our first sponsor, which is Notebook by Circus Ponies at CircusPonies.com. Uh, Notebook is an app both for the Mac and for the iPad that allows you to create, well, virtual notebooks of data that kind of makes sense to you in whatever whatever form you want. If you might be taking a class, you might be working on a project at, at the office, you might be planning uh, an event at home, and you want to store all the data related to that event in one place. And Notebook is the place to do that. When you start out, you're typing into a virtual notebook where you see white lined paper and you can add your hierarchies and all that. But then the cool part is you can also drag in just about anything. You can drag, drag in URLs, PDFs, pictures, other media. Uh, we've got people that listen to the Geek Gab here right on uh, the, in their notebook. They, they pull uh, the audio from the, from the show into the notebook and start playing it. And then they can take notes and add URLs and, and widgets and all that stuff right in there. Uh, very, very cool stuff and very, very handy. There is, of course, a free trial. And if you haven't used Notebook before, I highly recommend that you go and check out their free trial at CircusPonies.com. Once you're ready to buy, it's $29.99 for the iPad and $49.95 for the Mac. Uh, if you are a student, there is a $20 discount you can get. From, so you can get it for $29.95 on the Mac. But the iPad pricing, of course, stays the same because there is no discounted pricing available from Apple for the iPad. All of this you can check out at CircusPonies.com. Uh, all right. And then with that, John, it's time to get on to Rick. And Rick writes, uh, one of my Mac user group friends uses Aperture much more than iPhoto. Quick View in Mail has an option of saving to iPhoto. Can this be changed to save to Aperture? I've been trying to make a Finder plugin with Automator using information I got online, but I don't know where to put it or even if that's the right approach. Uh, so, John, you're our resident Aperture guy, so uh, why don't you take this one? Well, recently, because... Uh, so I've been a longtime iPhoto user, but yep. recently, because of the deal through the App Store, and because iPhoto doesn't do good with large libraries like the one I had, which was about 80 gigabytes and about 10 years worth of pictures. Uh, Aperture is just the next step up. And so for 79 bucks, I decided to, you know, get it, migrate all my stuff over. Sure. And frustratingly enough, Dave, so, so the thing is a lot of the applications on the Mac, like iWeb and others who are aware of Apple photo apps, the ones that used to show iPhoto as an option will, if you have Aperture, show Aperture as an additional option. This huh. was not the case. So in this case, and, and I think what he's talking about is not quick look, but I think it's quick view, Dave. Or uh, No, it is quick look. He's, he's correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, look. no. He yeah. said quick view. But what, what, what the technology is really called, Dave, is quick look. And this is something that you can invoke not only from mail, but from the finder is that if you highlight something and you say quick look. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm not being very specific, but suffice to say within mail, if you highlight a graphic or a document or something like that, and, uh, and maybe you could find it for me while, while I'm babbling here. But, uh, but if you say open and quick look, 
what happens is Quick Look will look at the type of file and then bring up a viewer which is specific to that file. Now, if it's a graphic like a JPEG or and and that's I think what he's saying. Yep. It'll say, well, add it to iPhoto, and I'm like, oh, well, you know. Then if you have Aperture, it should say, add it to Aperture. It doesn't. Uh, right. Now I think there's a reason for this because, it, and and this is what shocked me when I got Aperture. So when I got the uh, the iFi card, the nice thing about the iFi is that it would upload pictures to your computer, and then when you open iPhoto, it would magically import them. And I'm like, how is it doing this? Well, I know exactly how it's doing this, or I, I have a, a very strong suspicion is that if you open up the iPhoto package, Dave, inside of that is a folder called auto import. And I'm almost positive. Ah. So it's not visible, but I think it's sort of like an API. So the applications know that you have iPhoto. They'll stuff the pictures in the auto import folder. And as soon as you open iPhoto, immediately it imports all those photos into a new project or it just imports them. Well, is it the one there- thing? Isn't there another way to do that? I mean, it, you can take a picture and drag it on the app icon, either in the finder or in the dock, right? And, and I'm yes, right. So, and and I think there's a way that applications can can send data to other applications and bypass the the auto import folder. I, I think yes. there is. Yeah. No, you're correct. Now, uh, now, one way to do it, but I see that as kind of caveman, is to yeah, drag the picture over the aperture icon and it'll import it. Uh, to me, that's a given. But right, I, I'm not going to make an assumption. So that's one way to do it: is to highlight the photo or photos and drag them over the aperture icon in your dock, and that that should work just fine. Right. But I want to get a little more sophisticated, and okay. and because the question uh, Rick asked is, hey, you know, can I do this with Automator? And actually, it turns out. This is what I ended up doing. So I really wanted that iFi functionality. So, so one thing the iFi software does, it says, well, hey, I can either import your photos into iPhoto, which, of course, you know, it's using that mechanism I mentioned, or I can copy it to a folder on your computer for you. I'm like, OK, let's do that. And here's what I eventually ended up doing. So, so someone out there actually wrote a plugin, which I looked at. So the Aperture site at Apple actually has a list. I, I mean, one of the nice things about Aperture is there are a boatload of plugins. Like we actually used one to do our gallery picture upload, which is very nice. Um, but I actually developed one, Dave, that was just two steps in Automator. So, so he was on the right path. Okay. Because what I wanted is, so one, so iFi, the way I have it set up now, will deliver all the pictures that are on the iFi card to a specific folder on my Mac. The thing is, how do I get them into Aperture. And, and the answer is yes, you use Automator. And there are two steps here. So one step when you build, and I built a, a, an Automator application. So the first step is you select get specified finder items. And this is basically a step in Automator where you say, get all the items from this specific folder, which in this case was the folder the iFi put all the pictures in, and get ready to and, and submit this to the next step. Then the next step Fortunately, is Automator offers an action called import photos. <laughs> right. And that was it. And, and basically, the input is from the prior step. So I created a, a two-step application. And then what you say is add to and choose the project. So what I do is I have a ever-existing project in Aperture called iFi. And so that's what I would suggest is you, you could call it import whatever. And then the nice thing is you can also have a checkbox in the import photo step that's made... That, that's advertised by Aperture, saying delete source images, which I think is what you'd want to do. So sure. basically what happens is once that folder 
is full of enough photos that I want to submit to a project in Aperture, I basically take all or no, I just, I'm sorry, I just double click on that action and it automatically sucks all the photos out of that folder, deletes them and then imports them into a project in Aperture. So you could you, I have an idea for you and for for Rick's yep. uh, Rick's friend in the user group there. Uh, make your automator action and then activate it as a folder action. Right. So I was thinking about that. Uh, yes. Right. Very click, good. Very right. Good. Click on this i5 folder and, and do a folder action. And then actually you, you wouldn't even need to say get specified finder items because it's going to happen. The in the automator action will take input from that. Uh, so you just do your import photos and, and off you go. And that way, anything you dump in there will get imported. And then if you check that box deleted and boom, you're good to go. It saves you. It saves you a step. Good call. Yeah. All right. Uh, that's cool. I like this. All right. Moving on to Greg. Greg has a question, but uh, in the course of asking his question, shines a light on something that's that's cool to uh, to talk about here. Greg writes, uh, I'm having a problem with hot corners staying put over time. I have my lower right corner set to show the desktop, but only when the command key is depressed. It works for several days, and then all of a sudden, I accidentally move my mouse down there, and it shows me my desktop without me holding down the required command key. Very annoying. When I look at my preferences, sure enough, the command key is no longer required. I then reset it to require the command key, and all is well until some point in the future when it will again lose its requirement for the command key. Okay, so what he was talking about here was something of which I was unaware it works. If you go into system preferences and click on expose in spaces, uh, at least in the current build of Snow Leopard, the first section you'll see at the top of that is called active screen corners. And this is where you can set things up exactly like Greg describes. You can right. set one corner of the screen to go to sleep, one corner of the screen to never go to sleep, one to activate the screensaver, et cetera, et cetera. However, uh, and, and by each of these corners is a little drop down menu and you can pick, you know, what what they do. Greg talked about doing it with the command key and he's right. If instead of just clicking on one of those menus in the uh, active screen corners space in that preference pane, if you hold down the command key and click the menu, you'll see that every option in the list has the command key down and the same works with option control. Huh. Yeah. So what Look this at that. I'm doing it now. It's live. Wow. It's awesome. Amazing. Yeah, it's awesome. So but why so is it awesome? Well, because one of the th one of the reasons I've never used active screen corners is because my oh. mouse constantly drifts around the screen. I have it set to be pretty touchy because I like it to move fast. And it's not rare for me to hit hit the corners of the screen. And right. And to have it go black when I hit a certain corner drives me crazy. But if I could do it with oh. the command key down, well, no. I'm with you. All okay. right. Because that signals intent mm -hmm. rather than an accident. Right. Oh, okay. I'm. Oh, now I get it. Oh. That is a it, it's not talking. I never knew not, that. I know. Oh, man. So so that's that's the cool part of this. The uncool part is that Greg knew about this. So a thanks for uh, unintentionally informing not only us, but but all the rest of uh, your your listening brethren, Greg. But. Uh, now you have a problem, right, because it won't stick like this. And so what I did was I opened up my uh, home library preferences folder and sorted it by date modified. And then I started mucking about with uh, setting some some active screen corners. And the reason I had that window open is I wanted to see what preference file was being modified. And what immediately floated to the top was not obvious. It was 
com.apple.doc.plist. So mm-hmm. home library preferences and then com.apple.doc.plist is where all of these things are stored. And I confirmed it by opening up the plist file. And at the very end, there was this new definition for a hot corner. So uh, it's possible you've got a damaged doc system preferences. Um, and, and if that's the case, you've got, well, two options. One is you can open it in plist editor or text wrangler or BB edit. If you have it uh, to see if you can find and repair any corruption manually. The second option, which is not optimal, uh, but would work is to throw the file away and, uh, and, and just have the system and then reboot and have the system rebuild it. You'll lose not only uh, your doc preferences, but obviously all these other ones too. But if that's what it takes to fix it, well, maybe that's it. Although I hear I hear Mr. Braun chomping at the bit. So maybe there is a third option for you, Greg. That- well, you didn't hear me, but but I was going to say, Dave, you're just dying to know. How can you tell if you have a corrupt preference file? Yeah. And I'm going to tell you because I just remember this in the back of my mind because I was... Uh, Repairing my drive the other day, and yep. our friend Onyx has an option. So if you fire up Onyx and you go to verify, there is a preferences tab, and they actually have a little checkbox here. So they have two checkboxes. One is to verify user preferences and system preferences, which, of course, is either in the, the, the high-level library preferences directory or the home directory library preferences directory. But they have a little checkbox saying show only corrupt preference files. So... Huh. You may want to run that every now and then. Yeah. So I think by corrupt, it determines, well, I don't know what the heck it means. I, I, I think mm. it means if the data in the prep file is not of the type that is expected. Right. So, so this is something, something that you probably may want to do every now and then. And I, once or twice I've had it and it'll highlight it. And that's a clear sign that you want to jettison that uh, prep file. And I think it'll do it for you. Or if it doesn't, then at least you know where it is and you can get rid of it. But yeah, I'm with you. Sometimes, you know, things just go bad. And, and you got to get rid of the profile. Yeah. But thought I tossed in about Onyx. I mean, That's we, we just love it to death. It's yeah. uh, it, it solves so many problems. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's awesome. Cool. All right. Moving on to uh, a tip from Jeff about uh, our last non-premium show, number 315. Hey, John and Dave. It's Jeff from Denver, Colorado. I was just listening to episode 315. The anon- anonymous caller who was having the time machine issue of wanting an extra 60 gigabytes beyond his space used on the internal drive. I've actually run across this issue on a number of occasions where I will plug in another external hard drive that does not happen to be in the excluded list from Time Machine, and Time Machine suddenly bloats up once a lot more space than it originally needs, and I've oftentimes had it where I'll end up losing a lot of my older backups as it's deleting those old ones to make room for that new hard drive I've attached. The solution to that is to go into system preferences, open up Time Machine, and add that other external drive to the excluded list. This is where you cut me off. All right. Uh, Yeah, you're absolutely right, Jeff. And, you know, where this is most important 
is if you uh, take our advice and also clone your hard drive, you know, on a regular basis, because any drive that's attached to your machine physically, either, mm-hmm. i.e. not over a network. And of course, a network connection could be physical, too. But anything that's either, you know, internal to your machine or USB FireWire or, or eSATA connections to the machine will automatically be backed up by Time Machine. And, uh, huh. and going into, as he said, system preferences, time machine, click options, and then uh, and then you can add that drive to the exclusions list. And it will remember that even if the drive's ejected and comes back, uh, yes. it, it will remember that exclusions list. So, you, you know, the last thing you want if you're cloning your boot drive is to have time machine backing right, up right, right. the cloned copy too. that. That's, you know, I think taking a lot of space. And so some way to know this. So one, and, and I don't always notice this, but there's two ways to, to know if this is happening, Dave. So one is, and, and again, you may not always see this, but you'll see the, you know, pulsing, you know, eye or whatever in, in the spotlight, uh, you know, magnifying glass. You'll see that dot. Now, I, I don't always notice it, but I think the other way to notice it, Dave, is if you're running any utility that monitors what's going on, like iStat menus, you're probably going to see, uh, I believe it's MD Worker. Well, that that's not busy. time machine, though. That's that's just spotlight reindexing. Oh, wait, itself. I'm sorry. No, ba- or no, is it backup D? I'm sorry. Is it, is backup, it backup D. D? No, it's backup D. I'm it's backup sorry. Backup D. And, so and if you the see dot, backup D the dot doing in the, stuff. The dot you don't in the spotlight it. is not related to this. No, you're right. I'm I'm, okay. I'm sorry, but that's no. Right. So ba- uh, yeah, no, I'm yeah. confusing spotlight and. But no, if you see backup D, you know, getting down. Then yeah, that's why because yeah. uh, well, it's doing what it thinks it should. Right. So so yeah, now I've I've had that. I think they've gotten over this problem, but I've on occasion seen um, time machine try to back up time machine drives, which I think they got oh. over that. Or maybe that's when you're that's you're. <laughs> well, no, I've I've seen that, and and sometimes you may have to explicitly. I mean, I, I suppose it couldn't hurt to drag a time machine drive into that exclusion list as well, but um. No, I've seen that on occasion. I think it was a bug or maybe, you know, yeah. like we pointed out, maybe a damage prep file. But I've, I've seen that happen where, you know, I plug in a drive and I'm like, what are you doing? Why are you backing up the backup drive? Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> Well, bad. I think it's if you have two separate. Right. Uh, I guess sometimes it doesn't know. So anyways, moving on. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so let's move to. Well, we can do Robin. That's fine. It's a it, any chance I can get to uh, to chat about this, <laughs> this one, this one particular technology. I'm happy to do so. We'll, right. make, this, we'll make this quick. Robin says, uh, I know you've talked about certain products and other episodes that may be able to help me in part, but I can't seem to put them all together to get a solution. I would like to get rid of my traditional landline and switch to my home phone connected to my cable via UMA or some other low cl- low cost uh, voice over IP plan. The problem is that my cable enters my house at a place where there is no phone jack close by and where my phone jacks are located. There isn't an easy or cheap or attractive way to run a cable to it. My options are to either run the cable over the full over the tile floor in front of the bathroom door over the outside of the door or completely around the entire bathroom floor. I'm in a townhouse, so I won't be doing any major renovation either. However, near the cable and near the phone jacks, there is a C access. Uh, I'm wondering if there is something I can plug into the AC jack or perhaps set up a relay from my wireless router near the phone jack. Any help you can give me. Okay, good. So yes, you're absolutely right. And, and you're close. So to, to summarize, the idea is what, what she wants to do is take, uh, a voice over IP solution and Umla O O M L O 
O M L A. Yeah. Is, uh, is, is a very low cost one, but there are others. And what, what it is, it's, it's a device that has an ethernet port on it and uh, a phone jack on it. And it connects, it uses your cable modem or whatever broadband connection you have to connect to their various servers over the internet. Vonage works the same way. Uh, and then it has a little relay in there that lets you, uh, treat it like a normal phone line. You can plug normal phones into it. You can even, as Robin clearly wants to do, plug it into your phone jack and feed all the phones in your home. So this is a cool thing. But of course, it the device has to be uh, centrally located somewhere where there is both cable or at least Ethernet and uh, telephone access nearby. And that is where Powerline comes in. So we've talked about using Powerline as the bridge to extend an Ethernet connection from one router to another uh, to extend an airport network or a wireless network. Well, you could use it for the same reason here. You could uh, plug Powerline adapters in to the AC jacks near both your phone and near your cable modem and then plug the Ethernet from your cable modem or your router or whatever into the power line jack on one end and then Ethernet into your Umla or whatever voice over IP router you have on the other end. And in theory, it will just magically work. Um, I've, I've had great luck with power line here. I use the, the Netgear uh, AV plus 200s, uh, but but there are others uh, that should work just fine. Just make sure they're 200 megabits or or even faster. Uh, there are some 500 megabits per second models coming out. So Or more. I think I've seen in the past. Uh, nobody's got anything faster than, I don't think there's anything on the market faster than 200 right now. Um, Netgear is about to come out with their 500 megabit per second model. So, but, 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 But you know, yeah, yeah. You're fine. But that, that's all moot with, uh, Thunderbolt, right? No, we won't talk about that (laughs) because many people have, and we won't. We we could. Yeah. Well, we, 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 we will, we will eventually it's a, yeah, no, maybe uh, I shouldn't mention that it's the up and coming, uh, communication, high speed communication standard on Macs, and Apple is, uh, on the ball here, but But um, not for networking, right? Thunderbolt is, is, I mean, it's, it's Intel's light peak technology, right? And, and, uh, and apparently Apple and Intel work closer together. This is, this is on the new MacBook pros, which were introduced. I actually got to play with them in San Francisco Mm -hmm. last week. Believe it or not, really? Yeah, at the Apple Store. At the Apple Store, yeah, we were just happening through Union Square. Well, I, I differ with you because to me, Lightpeak uh, appears to be a application neutral technology, and that yeah, so it's supposed to. Uh, so again, we're taking a tangent, but so, okay. sometimes this is good. But Lightpeak yeah. is a technology now. You know, it's kind of misleading because the name Lightpeak and uh, implies that it's going to operate over fiber, which I think a lot of the R and D was done over fiber, and, but and the can, implementation, it can run over fiber still. Well, I think it, 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 it was originally intended to, right. but Apple's implementation is over copper, you know, and it reminds me of the days uh, many years ago, Dave, if you remember gigabit ethernet, it was like, wow, this is great. And everybody was like, well, gigabit ethernet needs fiber. And the thing is, as it turns out for the most part, I think most people, at least in a consumer or low end space, right run gigabit ethernet just fine over copper well and, and then the, you have the, the underlying protocol which certainly you could run gigabit ethernet over fiber why not sure 
the benefit of running Thunderbolt over copper versus fiber uh, or or I should I should say light peak because Thunderbolt may never work over optical. And, and so it, to, to, to differentiate the difference between running light peak over fiber versus copper is that on copper, you can also send power. Uh, so devices that require bus power can get it yes. over a copper connection, whereas over obviously a, mm. uh, a light connection, that's not going right. to optical connection. That's not I think it happen. was, um, yeah, I think it's a uh, 10 Watts. I think they provide, yeah. which is, uh, yeah, enough for a laptop you know, that, that was my concern. So first, when I read about light peak, I'm like, well, if it's running over fiber, I mean, last I checked, uh, you know, fiber optics don't do a really good job of transmitting power. As a matter no. of fact, they, they do a terrible job. Yes, yes, quite, <laughs> that quite they good don't. insulators in that sense. <laughs> so that was my question. I, I, I'm wondering if they're going to eventually move to a fiber copper hybrid, which is what happens in a lot of networks. Yep. Is that, so you get the copper to carry the juice yep. and you get the fiber to carry the data and then everything's happy. But um, where are we going? But anyways, Light Peak. Or Thunderbolt is uh, now from what I understand, Dave, though, is that it sounds like what's going to happen is you're going to have adapters because uh, my understanding is light peak Thunderbolt. Sorry. Thunderbolt is going to support. I, I think it's a all in one communication bus for both displays. Yeah. Which I think we, we can put HDMI in there, which HDMI in itself supports not only video, but sound sure. so that's cool but then the bus also supports data but i think what's going to happen is you're going to have these adapters so uh, i think what's going to happen is you're going to have a thunderbolt to usb adapter a thunderbolt right. to firewire 800 adapter so you're going to have all these adapters but because you're using this common very high speed bus i think that's a good thing for everybody now it's, it's kind of funny because last well, night it's, it's kind of like are, the, the the express card go. slots right i mean it, it this replaces that in in many ways, because well, here's my fish shake. Here's my fish shake. When I looked at the description of, and some people got back to me on this. So when I saw the description of what Thunderbolt is, they said it's the first and, and Apple's PR, which you know, okay, it's it's marketing and stuff. They said it's the first occasion where you're going to get PCI Express throughput on a computer bus, and I'm like, um, uh, yeah, I thought Express Card kind of did that, and then right. Some of my colleagues, uh, I think Peter, you know, our friend Peter, Peter who's out in San Francisco right now, <laughs> actually pointed this out to me. Well, the problem is PCIe has multiple definitions. So right. the thing is, um, what they're saying is, is true in the sense that Thunderbolt is full bore PCIe. The, the problem is PCIe has a number of definitions. You can have one bit channel or you can have a big old 16 bit channel. Okay. And the thing is, so uh, as far as I can see, Thunderbolt supports the full, you know, really, really high throughput channel versus. So, so what what they said is, I think, marketing speak and that it's not the first occasion that you can do PCIe through a bus, but it's the fastest implementation you're going to get. And it should keep up with people's needs for, for quite a while. Yeah. So I'm excited. Uh, yeah, the only cool. thing my own my only reflect, reflection is uh, I'm not aware of any <laughs> devices that use it. Yeah, but then, uh, there, there was a, okay. I'm trying to think, was it Lassie that announced a drive on, on Thursday, maybe that, uh, that plugs directly oh, okay. into to light. And Drobo. Yeah. And I saw Drobo did a release. They yeah. said, we're going to support it. So I think everybody's on the bandwagon. There's no question. It's the, you know, six device it, it, maximum though on, uh, on light peak. Right. So it's, really? it's, like we're, it's like, we're back to the scuzzy days. 
Uh, for, for uh, hopefully you, you don't remember. need a Terminator. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, even Firewire it arguably needed Terminators, but we just never used them. But uh, but there were many devices that would fail in right. the wrong spot. Good tangent, though, because it's good for all of us who want our peripherals to operate at peak well, Light you know, or otherwise efficiency. The, the I nice think, part I mean, is the nice part is you know we, many MacBook Pro users lamented the uh, the the disappearance of the Express Card 34 slot because I, what it, I, well that that held me back, Dave. I, I right. got to tell you the truth: the replacement on the low end. Now you can still get Express Card on the 17 inch. Well, not anymore, I guess. Or, or no, I think you still can. No, I believe the 17 inch MacBook Pro will, has both. Right. Maybe you can verify that for me. Uh, I didn't remember seeing it but, there. But the but thing is, go Apple... Ahead, go ahead and check the specs. Go, check them. Okay, uh, but Apple basically got rid of the Express Card. So I think you and I have one of the last machines that Apple made that have the Express Card 34 slot built in. Right. Which, you know, on our machine, it's crippled. I think they uncrippled it. So ours is 1.5 gigabit. I think on the, on the, the you know, the, the future machines, they have a three gigabit per second uh, SATA 2, you know, full SATA 2 implementation. But yep. then they went to the, which I thought was stupid, the SD slot, which is like, what you know, that's not an expansion slot. Right. No, Express Card is, is an expansion slot because that allowed you to do USB or eSATA or whatever. Well, and that and that's what th- and and you're right. Yeah, the the 17 inch has both Thunderbolt now and the Express Card 34. But but you but know, battleship. Do I want that? What Thunderbolt? Ooh, I do. <laughs> what Thunderbolt gives you is the ability to 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 do that. Right. Not only can you connect your USB or your FireWire devices right. or your display, but in theory, because it's this you know, Uber wide pipe direct to the motherboard. Yep. If there is some new interface that we haven't thought of yet, or that people aren't using yet and, and, and then comes out, you just build a little adapter and you're good to go. Now, I mean, I'd say build a little adapter. There's probably a whole lot more to it than that, but it gives current machines the, the capability of, of accessing this just like we were doing with eSATA connections from our, from our current MacBook pros, you know, you could get an eSATA card for your express card slot and you were good to go. Now you would get an, you know, eSATA adapter for your Thunderbolt slot and off you go. Right. So it's a, it's definitely a cool thing. Uh, you know, I, I was happy to happy to see that come around. So yeah, good stuff. All right. Off the tangent. Back to we uh, another, can oh, we have we've another got, question. We have plenty of questions. No, oh, oh we, yeah. We always, we always have oh, yeah. too many questions. Uh, let's go. We, we've been geeky this show, so let's stay geeky and we'll go to, uh, to Jeremiah. Jeremiah writes, uh, and again, it's yet another one of those oh, questions that turns us on to something cool uh, while asking a question. Jeremiah say, says, I have spent all morning troubleshooting this issue and I'm coming to you for to some salvation. The problem is with my 27 inch 2.8 gigahertz iMac i7 with 8 gigs of memory and 1066 uh, installed. I started up and the hard drive never stops. It's constantly rattling and I'm at the end of my nerves with this. It's not just the rattling, but it causes applications like iTunes to skip and others like mail to come up with a beach ball because of the constant access of the hard drive. Today, I reset the PRAM and SMC. I recently repaired disk permissions using an install disk. This happens just the same with a guest user account as well. Activity monitor has not been very helpful to me. So I found an app called FS Eventer, and this is where I'm stuck and perplexed. This app shows hard drive activity in a GUI, and it's awesome. And indeed, it is. It, it's 
the easiest way to see activity on your hard drive happening in real time. It builds it in a, in a beautiful little kind of hierarchical GUI. It's awesome. So it was the, exactly the right thing to, to use here. And, uh, and were this not a question, it would have been included in the next Cool Stuff Found show because FS Eventer definitely deserves a mention on its own. Moving on, uh, he says, using FS Eventer under uh, slash private slash var slash TMP, I have a continuous flow of files that are being written and deleted. Each is formatted something like SQLITE underscore and then some alphanumeric sequence. I assume they are some database files, but I have no idea where they are coming from or how to stop them from being written. Okay, so you've done step one of the hard work, Jeremiah, is you figured out where the files are that are being written. The next question is, what is writing them? And uh, there's there's two ways that I know of to do it. And then, John, I think you've got a you've got even a third. So the first would be if you want to stay in the GUI, go to activity monitor. Now, this is going to going to be a bit tedious, but. As you double click applications in the list and activity monitor, you get a little detail window up and one of the tabs on that window is labeled open files and ports that will tell you which files are open by that process. And you can look through the list and see, you know, just keep looking through the list for every single process that's running again, a tedious process uh, and look for the ones that are writing to private var temp and SQLite underscore whatever uh, that would help. Uh, but that's tedious. If you're willing to go to the terminal, though, there's a command that we've talked about before called LSOF or list open files. Uh, and if you simply run that command, it's going to list every open file on your machine. You could then use terminals uh, find function in the edit menu to search for SQLite or, you know, whatever path you want to search for. And, and it'll find it. Uh, and that would likely that'll that'll likely you know, point you right in the right direction uh, because on the line where it lists the file, it also lists the application that has it open. The last part I'll, I'll say is that if you're, if you're willing to go a little further with the terminal, uh, you could type LSOF and don't hit enter yet hit space. And then the pipe character, which is a shift and uh, of the backslash, which is on most Apple keyboards above the return key. Uh, and then another space and then grab G R E P space and then whatever you're looking for uh what this does is it takes the output of that lsof command and pipes it into uh an expression parser called grep and uh and then we're telling grep only show me the lines that you know in his example if we type sq light uh it would you know only return those lines that are that are uh showing files with sq light and that could also help help narrow it down so so that's my that's my geeky answer for your uh, for your excellent question. And again, thanks, Jeremiah, for turning us on to uh, to the FS Eventer. But, John, you found one more terminal command, I think. Right. Well, I didn't find it. Jeremiah did. Mm. It, it, it's amazing. So yeah. number one, FS Eventer was so awesome. I actually wrote a Monday's Mac gadget. Oh, cool. Speak about it. And I think one thing is that he may have been able to. So one of the features that's not immediately obvious with FS Eventer is if you see a file being created, if you hover the cursor over it, it will tell you the process that's creating that file. So I'm wondering. Oh. So maybe that would have helped him determine, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, this app that's doing it. The other thing is that it buried in the preferences. Now, they warn against this, but I, I didn't see reason not to they have an option an option called list of all open files that that is normally off but you can turn on 
Ah, so that's another one. But then again, Jeremiah. No, I'm going to tip. Uh, I'm going to give him two tips of the hat because he deserves it. And then the other thing is actually in in the in our Twitter conversation with uh, which is of course through Mac Ecab. He indicated that he read a article. I believe it was our, at our uh, arch nemesis uh, at MacWorld. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, they're awesome. <laughs> um, there and and this is another thing. So, so that's my same. Jeremiah actually taught me more than than we're going to teach him. I think, but but I think we steered him in the right direction. But he indicated that he found a MacWorld article that talked about a command called fs underscore usage. Cool. Which looks to me, Dave, I ran it. Now, you have to do a sudo before it because this is a command. Well, I think it, it just sucks band, uh, It sucks processor. I mean, and it's showing you very intimate and, and a lot of right. unnecessary information. I think the article that he talked about actually helped you determine how to filter out all the bogus stuff. But I think if you want to know what's happening in your file system, which because FS, that's what that stands for, right. then FS underscore usage is... A, a geeky way of, uh, you know, if you want to know everything, I think that's the command. I think FS Eventer is a good way. And of course, we'll link to the the article I wrote. FS Eventer is a good way for a, a, you know, average casual or not even casual because we're not. Uh, are we casual? I don't know. Sure. <laughs> but, uh, but a, uh, you know, aspiring geek to look at what's happening on the hard drive. And you, you saw it, Dave. I saw it. It's just amazing when you look at it, when you see, you know, the trees explode from the apps and stuff like that. And yeah. it, it retains things, too. But it, it really gives you a sense of what's happening on your hard drive and who's doing what. And, uh, you know, I think it's kind of kind of beautiful. Cool. When I look at it. So. Next, I, I'm going to try something different here, John. Uh, Whoa! Well, I, I want to talk about our next sponsor, which is Audio Engine. But uh, but I'm going to talk about this product by telling a story that solves a, uh, a technical problem that I had. Mm. Uh, yeah. So so we'll try this a little bit differently. Uh, so I've have uh, I talk about the iMac in my kitchen all the time, uh, and then you know that's what we play our music through, and it's actually just off the kitchen, but what have you. And, and I do, I have the audio engine, a two speakers there. So, uh, and, and, you know, I've talked about that in other audio engine spots here before and they work great. What I'm missing out on though is, you know, on the other side of the house is our living room where we have our home theater set up and really nice speakers and all that. And I certainly can stream audio to my home theater via my TiVo. It's kind of a convoluted setup. I could do the same if I had an Apple TV, but it requires, you know, turning on the TV and navigating through and saying, yes, okay, go do this. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's fine, but blah, whatever. Uh, it also uh, doesn't allow me to play the audio in both places simultaneously, which would be really cool to be able to move from one room to the other of the house and hear sound coming out of speakers in different rooms, but have it all be in sync. So I got to thinking, well, wait a minute, you know, Audio Engine has this product called the AW or the Audio Engine W1, which is a USB audio device. So when you plug it in, there's two pieces. You plug one into your Mac and then the other you plug in to it's got a mini eight jack and you plug that into your home stereo. I have it going mini eight to RCA because that's the kind of jacks I have in my home stereo and it sends audio wirelessly uh, and I, th I think it'll send it about 100 feet. Uh, I'm certainly not having a problem in, in my home. And 
it does so with what they call no latency. I mean, I think there's obviously got to be some latency, but it's really, really, really low. So I could send audio from my iMac to the stereo in the living room. I don't need to turn on the TV and navigate anywhere to do it. I just kick on the uh, the the receiver slash amplifier, set it to the right channel, uh, you know, set it, tell it what input to use, and I'm good to go. So that was that was step one. And I'll tell you the the eight the W one works. It's awesome for this because it uh, it the sound is good. It's full quality sound. And I just send it from my Mac and I choose that as my sound output and it works great. But I, I still haven't solved the problem of of uh, yet of, of having it in both places. And that's actually where I used a, uh, a piece of software called. Oh, and now I can't remember it from Rogue Amoeba mm-hmm. uh, air speakers, air speakers, airfoil, air spare foil. That's right. And what airfoil lets you do is send sound to uh, to remote computers. But what I did was I just set it up on the local machine and have it send sound to two sets of speakers on the local machine because iTunes and, and the Mac OS in general won't let you send audio out more than one set of locally connected speakers. And again, that's what these the AW one appears as just a locally connected USB speaker device. And uh, but but using airfoil, I was able to uh, foil the OS and uh, and have sound in both places. And it's awesome. So uh, so these this wireless W1 unit from from audio engine is killer, uh, works great and makes life very, very easy for uh, for that. So so again, it's all available at audio engine The W1 is ninety nine bucks and you can use our coupon code MGG 10 for a 10 percent discount off of uh, off of that price so you got nothing to lose they'll uh, they'll take it back if you don't like it so it's uh, all available at audioengineusa.com we should uh, yeah. we should answer a couple more questions here john it's been it's been a while since we've been here so maybe we got to go a little longer today oh well, we could now i'm wondering about the no, questions here dave i, I see good. some i don't know if i have a choice here uh sure <laughs> cast a vote <laughs> Well, you know, it's a, it's a little on the Cast agenda, vote. I, Jeff. Oh, gosh, that's way off into Never Never Land. I don't what? know. What? No, it's not. We can, we can talk it's about It's an easy Jeff. one. It's, it is an easy one. I, I'm just not sure to how many people it will apply, but... Uh, but well, it's a, fish, so, it's a fish shake. That, that's why I like it, oh, too. Oh, boy. All right. So <laughs> we're going to abuse Mr. Braun on this one, folks. Bear with me. Uh Jeff writes, I have an early 2008 20-inch iMac that's out of warranty. The original Western Digital Drive uh, caked, bricked, died some weeks ago, and I've been running off an external USB drive. Last weekend, I installed a new Seagate one terabyte drive inside the machine. It works like a dream, except I have created a problem with the CPU fan. Namely, it ramps up to full speed at startup and stays there. I've tried pulling the machine apart two more times to ensure the sensors are correctly placed. They seem to be. Uh, I've reset the PRAM and SMC. Uh, I still can't figure it out. I ran the Apple hardware test and it resulted in the following error code for SNS slash one slash four and many zeros colon TLOP dash one thirty. I can't seem to figure out what this means, though. I assume it's a sensor error. Uh, any help would be appreciated. So John go. Okay. Very quickly. Here's the problem. So some of the iMacs would have a hard drive with the temperature sensor. I think part of the hard drive itself. Now, as it turns out, um, you know, discussing this with Jeff, 
that was not the case. Right. So some Apple hard drives uh, that they use have the temperature sensor in the drive. Some don't. Some have it externally. As it turns out, when I wrote back to him, he said, no, my drive is actually one that has the temperature sensor on the case of the drive. Here's the frustration, and here's the fish shake. So I found out, and uh, it was through um, unnamed Apple sources, which I, I don't want to get them in trouble. Um, but basically, I tossed out this error code to to my network of uh, confidential sources. And number one, here's the stupid thing, Dave, and this is the fish shake. The list of codes and what they mean uh, have these big letters on them, and, and they spell out A-P-P-L-E-C-O-N-F-I-D-E-N-T-I-A-L. I think that's Turkish. <laughs> no, it's Apple Confidential. Oh, it's like, oh that's right. What the heck? So the thing is, if you get this code, and actually, no, you get this code when you run Apple hardware test, you don't know what it means. Now, Jeff you know, was was pretty keen in, in thinking, well, you see four SNS. But basically, through my Apple sources, I found what this means is, Dude, you busted the sensor or the sensor is malfunctioning. So I think what happened is when he tried to replace the hard drive, whatever wiring was going to the sensor was somehow damaged. And that's what the machine is saying. And unfortunately, in this case, when the Mac thinks that a temperature sensor is not working, it will fall back to, which is probably somewhat sensible. It'll say, you know what? I'm going to assume that this machine is roasting and I'm going to run the fans at full speed. Now, as, as you and I and many others have seen, uh, a Mac running the fans at full speed is not a pleasant experience. Right, so, right. Huh. To me, I just wanted to get that fish shake out there that couldn't the error code just say temperature sensor damaged, which is really, I think, what this what this meant. That's so inadvertently, what, what Jeff did is he he probably pulled a wire or, or somehow, I, I don't know exactly, uh, mucked up the wiring or the sensor itself. And, and that that's why this is happening. So, Jeff, I have an answer for solving your problem, though. And and mm. knowing that the sensor is going to continue to report erroneous data to the system, what you need to do is bypass the sensor and wrangle control of the fans. Um, the he did that, I think. Okay, actually, and, he got. Well, are you going to say SMC? Uh, no, I was going to. I was going to recommend iStat menus because oh, oh. I the 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 new version of iStat menus version uh, version three point X whatever it is now uh, has fan control, but but it's got. Uh, it allows you to set different profiles right. so you can you can set, you know, a, a normal profile. An I'm running hot profile and uh, and, and sensor you can, broken. Yeah. And you can you can <laughs> change the uh, the the well, actually, with this, you can only change the minimum speed. So maybe that isn't going to help. Maybe SMC fan control is the answer for you, Jeff. And I think he tried that. But I think what, what, okay. what has to happen is that sensor has to get replaced. And it sounds like inadvertently. Yeah. You know, it was damaged. Um, you know, uh, my understanding is Apple Care, if you call them, which of course has the access to the, you know, confidential error list, will say, oh, yeah, send it in. We'll take care of it. So right. it's unfortunate, but uh, I guess the, the message here is if you have an iMac of a recent vintage, uh, be careful when you replace the hard drive because there may be a temperature sensor nearby. Yeah. And if you damage it, then you're going to get the, uh, you know, the uh, airplane taking off effect when. <laughs> yeah. And this is, this I've, is why Apple has these things listed as, you know, not user serviceable parts because, because there are a lot of these minor little things that, uh, that seem minor at the time. And then once you're on your way out, well, well you know, I told so Jeff much. this, 
now, now actually, I, uh, I uh, you know, I was helping my buddy Duffy, and actually, I was I was very happy. So he brought his wife's machine over for me to fix, and this is a tangent, but we'll uh, get back to it. Um, he brought his machine by, and he said, and it's an iMac. Now, I don't have an iMac. You have an iMac, Dave. But uh, I guess the reflection, and we'll wrap it up really quick. But he brought his machine over, and he's like, you know, she's noticing slowdowns. And we pretty much quickly realized that the problem is he only has one gigabyte of RAM in the machine. Uh, now, uh, now, uh, amazingly, the RAM chip I pulled out of my uh, old MacBook Pro was the exact same type. Mm-hmm. So, so I made a donation to him. But my, awesome. my, my question to you, Dave, is you have one of these iMacs, too, and is it how easy is it to replace the hard drive? I mean, Not. Is it a pair? Oh, it's okay. terrible. Yeah, okay. I wouldn't I so, wouldn't do it. I would pay somebody to do it. Got it. Yeah, it's it's almost probably even worse than taking apart a laptop because the screen is so much bigger and you're constantly wrestling with that and it's got to be laying down. And yeah, it taking apart any okay. of these iMacs is not fun. Um, got it. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, go to your local, uh, you know, the Apple store. Once you're out of warranty, the Apple store is tough, but find your local Apple authorized reseller and, and go to them mm. because not only do they have the all the knowledge and all the access to all the stuff that that uh, that the geniuses do, but they're third parties. They're they're on their own, and they can, for you know, an hourly charge, fix your computer for you. So you know, if I was to have to replace a hard drive in my in my iMac, I'd bring it down to my guy, and you know, I mean, maybe they charge me a hundred bucks. I right. don't know, you know, whatever the hourly rate is, but. Uh, but but they have but they're doing it right because they're doing it per all of Apple's specs and they have all the all the access to to all that stuff so that that really to me that's the that's the way to do it uh, and and any time I've done it where I haven't gone to them first I always wind up going to them in the end so <laughs> <laughs> let's just put it that way uh, Mike has a good question that's probably quite uh, quite near and dear to to many of our hearts. Mike writes, do you guys have any suggestions on data recovery software? This is in relation to some accidentally deleted files. Uh, John, I'll let you go. And then I, I know you've got a recommendation and I'll, I'll make mine too. Well, oh, I'm sorry. I was responding to you. Oh, go ahead. Mike, <laughs> data recovery software. Go. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, Mike. So Mike had a problem. This is terrible. Now, uh, the one problem is when you delete files under any OS... Let me bring it up here. Okay. When you delete a file under Mac OS X or any operating system, here's what happens, or pretty much any modern operating system. You're not really getting rid of the information. What you're doing is is writing to the directory of the hard drive, which kind of keeps track of everything on the hard drive and saying, yeah, that this doesn't exist anymore. And by the way, if you need to use the space again, use it. Well... Once that happens, it's kind of a roll of the dice, whether if and when the OS is going to rewrite that data, Dave, my recommendation would be, um, and, and I've had a long experience with these guys, but ProSoft Engineering makes something called Data Rescue. And that is the first thing I recommended to them. And actually, they have a demo. So I think Mike may have gotten away for nothing here because their demo is limited to recovering a single file of 10 gigabytes or less. Okay. So he may have gotten away for nothing. But this is something I think anybody who, I don't know, if you manage computers and you have people that are, you know, 
you know, deleting things right and left, which I don't know if you're in that environment, certainly an enterprise environment and even a, yeah. a home environment, if you're worried about losing data and yet, I mean, the other thing I asked them, which, you know, of course he answered no. I'm like, well, did you back it up? And of course he said, well, no. <laughs> so number one, make a backup kids. Um, number two, uh, this is a product, uh, as far as I can tell their, their methodology is they basically scour the hard drive, because the problem is the, the way hard drives work is there's a directory of what's on the hard drive and then there's the data itself. And as far as I can tell, the, the way data rescue works is actually scours the drive and looks at the data. And maybe it looks at the directory, but it looks at the data and says, you know what? This data kind of looks like it may be a Word file or a JPEG file or, or this file or that file. And it'll attempt to recover it. Um, the thing I got to state is that once you delete a file... You know, it, it's hit or hit or miss. Right. Because uh, if and when the OS decides to wipe out either the directory entry or the data, it, when it's gone, it's gone. So. Right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, when when this came in, I thought, oh, yeah, you know, there really is nothing good. And then and then I remembered Mac Keeper, which uh, which we've known hmm. about for a while. And I got to talk to those guys at, at Macworld Expo. And we even talked about it at the at the um, cool stuff found at Macworld Expo. Mm-hmm. And and they they Mac Keeper has uh, undelete functionality built right into it. And it, I, I asked him about it when I when I talked to him, I said, OK, well, what are you guys doing? Are you doing some magic here? What you know, what are you doing? He said, well, uh, we're we're doing kind of what you described ProSoft is doing, right, where you can, we can go out and scour for types of files and that sort of thing. But also once you've installed Mac Keeper. It can use FS events, uh, which we talked about earlier in the show, Ooh. to track a deleted file and actually bring it back that way. So a much smoother process. And uh, I have yet to uh, to to test this, actually. But uh, but they were showing it to me. On, I mean, I tested it with them on their computers. I haven't tested it on mine, but uh, but they were showing it to me there and it, it worked great. I mean, it you know, the file goes away, you empty it from the trash as long as you bring it back relatively quickly right and and again that speaks to what you were saying john about how you know this stuff once it's made marked as available anything can write to it and uh and and that's sort of the risk but as long as it hasn't been overwritten yeah matt keeper just brings it right on back so so it's cool stuff uh i definitely you know the more i the more i have used that matt keeper thing the happier i've been with it and okay uh, yeah it's good it's good and it's, you know, it's funny because we were talking in the pre-show about this and John, you, you expressed some, some concerns about it because they're a new company and I felt well, exactly the same way. Well, that's my only concern. They're, right. They're new. Uh, ProSoft is an old friend of ours. Right. We've known them for years. We see them in Macworld. We, we see them year after year. These guys, and I remember getting, and I think you may have too, I get emails out of the blue from this company saying, yeah, hey, we got this, uh, you know, utility that does everything. And, and, and again, I... You know, I think it's safe to say I was a bit nervous. I mean, yeah. well, who who are these guys? But, but, you know, but, here's but it the sounds thing. like you you're, I, you you met with them and you talked to them. And it yeah. sounds like at the very least they know what they're doing. Well, here's the thing. You know, I, I was one of the first people to start uh, singing the praises of Onyx. Right. I used cocktail for a long time. Uh, and, and that was written cocktails written by a Russian guy, I think. Right. Uh, oh, and, well, and, well, and then I mean. and, and then we moved to Onyx or I moved to Onyx because it was free. 
Right. And it and it did all the things that I needed cocktail to do. But, you know, I've never been able to talk to the developer of Onyx. I mean, it's a company in France. Really? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I've gotten a reply from him, but I don't think oh, well, so. The French are even worse than the Russians. Oh, I mean, come on. Uh, and and uh, yeah, people just Thanks. don't there even write See, the emails. I'm just kidding. Right. Sorry. Move on. But, but you know, so we try, you know, I was thinking about this after we did our pre-show and kind of before we started recording. I'm like, oh, yeah. Why do I you know what what? you know, where, where's the line that, that makes me go from questioning a company to trusting it. And, uh, and, and the same thing has happened with Matt keeper. You know, at first it was like, well, who are these guys? And then, like I said, I met with them and I feel a whole lot better about the product. I've used it. Some, I haven't used it for this, but I've used it for some mm-hmm. other stuff. And, uh, and you know, I, I, and I was thinking, well, Onyx, we recommend without even thinking about it. And yet these developers are, you know, probably no bigger than, uh, then and maybe much smaller than the folks at uh, Zeobit that make Mac keepers. So, so right. yeah, it's, it's interesting how, how the, how the mind plays these games. So we have one last, one last question from oh Hugh. Gosh. And Hugh says, I recently got a spare one terabyte Seagate expansion, external drive for time machine. Uh, I've had my iMac 21 inch I three since August of 2010. I've done an erase and install of Mac OS 10. And then I tried to run time machine through the setup installer, but it wasn't being picked up for some reason. Sorry, I'm, I, I think Hugh's native language is not English, and I'm trying my darndest to uh, to make sense of this. So bear with me. So I logged on and tried to do it in Migration Assistant once I had reinstalled Mac OS X. Uh, it was picked up in Migration Assistant, but as I was using my full name as my logon, and the original logon uh, was also that I quit my migration assistant and went into accounts and renamed my account from my full name to just my first name. This time it picked it up without a hitch and uh, went and reinstalled everything from migration assistant. It wasn't until a couple of hours later that I tried to use dashboard. I downloaded and installed a new widget. I tried to open the newly installed widget, but it crashes and Hugh sent a little video. So here's what happened. Hugh uh, couldn't get migration assistant to work during the installation process. So instead then went and created a new account and ran migration assistant from inside that account. When you do that, now you'll wind up with two accounts on the system, potentially, especially the path that Hugh took. And more importantly, user accounts on Mac OS 10 are assigned as they are on any Unix are assigned an account ID. And the first account created is account 501. So if you only had account one account on the previous machine, it was it was user ID 501. So that would have been the same with Hugh's uh, initial account that he created. When Migration Assistant creates a new account, it's 502. So sometimes that's going to cause a permission issue, especially if a file is brought over, is owned by 501, but it's part of account 502, and it can cause uh, quite a few issues. So. In theory, a permissions reset will fix this. I think what he showed us was when he was trying to add the the widget to the dashboard, it would just close. Nothing would happen. He'd click the little button and it would close. Try to drag it into the dashboard and it would close. Uh, And I think it's a permissions issue. So a, a permissions repair might fix this, but what you might need to do is have the permissions file completely recreated. And it's again in home library preferences. It's called com.apple.dashboard.plist. And there's also com.apple.dashboard.client.plist. Delete both of those files, reboot your Mac. And in theory, that should allow the file to be created and more importantly, modified, which will allow you to put new things back into the dashboard. So I think, I think 
that's the uh, the magic answer there. I think you're right. Yeah, you, you don't have any 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 further thoughts on that. No, that's why I said I think you're right. All right, good. <laughs> There's the band. Contact information. You can email us to feedback at macgeekab.com. No, 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 oh, no, oh, no, oh. no, no. It's feedback at macgeekab.com. That's right, John. It's feedback at macgeekab.com for your questions, your comments, your tips, your screenshots, your movies, whatever else it is you want to send through. Uh, mm. You can call us at 206-666-GEEK, which John is, of course, 4335. And you can Skype us to MacGeekab. You can also find us on Twitter. John, tell us about Twitter. Twitter. Well, it's this uh, It's this thing. Okay, good. Tell them how to find us on Twitter. <laughs> of course I will. I am John F. Braun. Dave Hamilton is Dave Hamilton. Mackie Gab is Mackie Gab. Mac Observer is Mac Observer. Um, Pilot Pete, who is not here, sadly, he's probably piloting. It's Pilot Pete. It, it, it couldn't be any easier. All, it, all of those are at Twitter.com, of course. The WeHaveCommunicators.com is the home of the podcast that Michael Johnston creates. He's also the one that converts this to AAC enhanced mode for all of you. So uh, thank you very kindly, Michael. And Cashfly at Cashfly.com provides all the bandwidth. The podcast marketplace this month, of course, includes the A2 speakers and W1 from Audio Engine, Yo Jimbo from Barebone Software, PDF Pen from Smile, and Notebook from Circus Ponies all through Backbeat Media. And with that, folks, we are out of here. I can go rest my throat now. I brought back this great souvenir from San Francisco. Can't you hear it, everybody? Yeah. For me. Did you bring me one? Oh, yeah. I'll share. No. <laughs> no, this, no, is, no. this cold is mine. I'm not sharing it with anybody. Oh, except maybe my wife and kids. We'll see you next time, folks. Uh, next Monday for the next Mac Geek Cab. Regular and Thursday for Mac Kick Premium. <laughs>